Section 46 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Garvin. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the First. Chapter 12. Scotland, Ireland, and England. Let us note a circumstance. Josiana had le tour. This is easy to understand when we reflect that she was, although illegitimate, the queen's sister, that is to say a princely personage. To have le tour, what does it mean? Viscount St. John, otherwise Bolingbroke, wrote as follows to Thomas Leonard, Earl of Sussex. Two things mark the great. In England they have le tour, in France le pour. When the king of France travelled, the courier of the court stopped at the halting place in the evening, and assigned lodgings to his majesty's suite. Among the gentlemen some had an immense privilege. They have le pour, says the journal historique, for the year 1694, page 6, which means that the courier who marks the billets puts pour before their names, as pour monsieur le prince de soupies, instead of which, when he marks the lodging of one who is not royal, he does not put pour, but simply the name, as le duc de Gesvre, le duc de Mazarin. This pour on a door indicated a prince or a favorite. A favorite is worse than the prince. The king granted le pour, like a blue ribbon or a peerage. Avoir le tour in England was less glorious but more real. It was a sign of intimate communication with the sovereign whoever might be by birth or favor in a position to receive direct communications from majesty had in the wall of their bedchamber a shaft in which was adjusted a bell the bell sounded the shaft opened a royal missive appeared on a gold plate or on a cushion of velvet and the shaft closed this was intimate and solemn the mysterious and the familiar the shaft was used for no other purpose the sound of the bell announced a royal message no one saw who brought it. It was, of course, merely the page of the king or the queen. Lester Avey la Tour under Elizabeth, Buckingham under James I, Josiana had it under Anne, though not much in favor. Never was a privilege more envied. This privilege entailed additional servility. The recipient was more of a servant. At court, that which elevates degrades. Avoir la Tour was said in French, this circumstance of English etiquette having, probably been borrowed from some old french folly lady josiana a virgin peeress as elizabeth had been a virgin queen led sometimes in the city and sometimes in the country according to the season an almost princely life and kept nearly a court at which lord david was courtier with many others not being married lord david and lady josiana could show themselves together in public without exciting ridicule and they did so frequently they often went to plays and race-courses in the same carriage, and sat together in the same box. They were chilled by the impending marriage, which was not only permitted to them, but imposed upon them. But they felt an attraction for each other's society. The privacy permitted to the engaged has a frontier easily passed. From this they abstained. That which is easy is in bad taste. The best pugilistic encounters then took place at Lambeth, a parish in which the Lord Archbishop of Canterbury has a palace though the air there is unhealthy and a rich library open to certain hours to decent people one evening in winter there was in a meadow there the gates of which were locked a fight at which josiana escorted by lord david was present she had asked 
are women admitted? And David had responded, Sun feminine magnetis. Liberal translation, not shopkeepers. Literal translation, great ladies exist. A duchess goes everywhere. This is why Lady Josiana saw a boxing match. Lady Josiana made only this concession to propriety. She dressed as a man, a very common custom at that period. Women seldom traveled otherwise. Out of every six persons who traveled by the coach from Windsor, it was rare that there were not one or two amongst them who were women in male attire, a certain sign of high birth. Lord David, being in company with a woman, could not take any part in the match himself, and merely assisted as one of the audience. Lady Josiana betrayed her quality in one way. She had an opera glass, then used by gentlemen only. This encounter in the noble science was presided over by Lord Germain, great-grandfather, or grand-uncle, of that Lord Germain who, towards the end of the eighteenth century, was colonel, ran away in a battle, was afterwards made minister of war, and only escaped from the bolts of the enemy to fall by a worse fate, shot through and through by the sarcasm of Sheridan. Many gentlemen were betting. Harry Bellew of Carleton, who had claims to the extinct peerage of Bella Aqua, with Henry, Lord Hyde, member of Parliament for the borough of Dunhivid, which is also called Launston, the Honorable Peregrine Bertie, member for the borough of Truro, with Sir Thomas Culpepper, member for Maidstone, the Laird of Lamyrow, which is on the borders of Lothian, with Samuel Trefusis of the Bureau of Penryn, Sir Bartholomew Gresdew of the Bureau of St. Ives, with the Honorable Charles Bodville, who was called Lord Robartes, and who was Custus Rotolorum of the County of Cornwall, besides many others. Of the two combatants, one was an Irishman, named after his native mountain and temporary, Philem Madon and the other a Scot, named Helmsgale. They represented the national pride of each country. Ireland and Scotland were about to set to. Air was going to Fisticuth Gajothal, so that the bets amounted to over 40,000 guineas, besides the stakes. The two champions were naked, excepting short breeches buckled over the hips, and spiked boots laced as high as the ankles. Helmsgale, the Scot, was a youth scarcely nineteen, but he had already had his forehead sewn up, for which reason they laid two and a third to one on him. The month before he had broken the ribs and gouged out the eyes of a pugilist named Six Mileswater. This explained the enthusiasm he created. He had won his backers twelve thousand pounds. Besides having his forehead sewn up, Helmsgale's jaw had been broken. He was neatly made and active. He was about the height of a small woman, upright, thick-set, and of a stature low and threatening and nothing had been lost of the advantages given him by nature, not a muscle which was not trained to its object, pugilism. His firm chest was compact and brown and shining like brass. He smiled, and three teeth which he had lost added to his smile. His adversary was tall and overgrown, that is to say, weak. He was a man of forty years of age, six feet high, with the chest of a hippopotamus and a mild expression of face. The blow of his fist would break it in the deck of a vessel, but he did not know how to use it. The Irishman, Phelim Gamadon, was all surface, and seemed to have entered the ring to receive rather than to give blows. Only it was felt that he would take a deal of punishment, like underdone beef, tough to chew and impossible to swallow. He was what was termed, in local slang, raw meat. He squinted. He seemed resigned. The two men had passed the preceding night in the same bed, 
and had slept together. They had each drunk port wine from the same glass to the three-inch mark. Each had his group of seconds, men of savage expression, threatening the umpires when it suited their side. Among Hamscale's supporters was to be seen John Gromain, celebrated for having carried an ox on his back, and one called John Bray, who had once carried on his back ten bushels of flour, at fifteen pecks to the bushel, besides the miller himself, and had walked over two hundred paces under the weight. On the side of Phelim Gimedon, Lord Hyde had brought from Launceston a certain kilter, who lived at Green Castle, and could throw a stone weighing twenty miles to a greater height than the highest tower of the castle. These three men, Kilter, Bray, and Gromain, were Cornishmen by birth, and did honor to their county. The other seconds were brutal fellows, with broad backs, bowed legs, knotted fists, dull faces, ragged, fearing nothing, nearly all jailbirds. Many of them understood admirably how to make the police drunk. Each profession should have its peculiar talents. The field chosen was farther off than the bear garden, where they formerly baited bears, bulls, and dogs. It was beyond the line of the farthest houses, by the side of the ruins of Priory of St. Mary Overy, dismantled by Henry the Eighth. The wind was northerly and biting. A small rain fell, which was instantly frozen into ice. Some gentlemen present were evidently fathers of families, recognized as such by their putting up their umbrellas. On the side of Phelim Gibmadon was Colonel Moncrief, as umpire, and Kilter, as second, to support him on his knee. On the side of Helmsgale, the Honorable Pooke Bormeris was umpire, with Lord Desertum from Kilcarry, as bottle-holder, to support him on his knee. The two combatants stood for a few seconds motionless in the ring, whilst the watches were being compared. They then approached each other and shook hands. Phelim Gibmadon said to Helmsgale, I should prefer going home. Helmsgay answered, handsomely, the gentlemen must not be disappointed on any account. Naked as they were, they felt the cold. Phelim Gimedon shook, his teeth chattered. Dr. Eleanor Sharp, nephew of the Archbishop of York, cried out to them, Set to, boys, it will warm you. Those friendly words thawed them. They set to. But neither one nor the other was angry. There were three ineffectual rounds. The Reverend Dr. Gumdraith, one of the forty fellows of All Souls College, cried, Spirit them up with gin. But the two umpires and the two seconds adhered to the rule, yet it was exceedingly cold. First blood was claimed. They were again set face to face. They looked at each other, approached, stretched their arms, touched each other's fist, and then drew back. All at once Helmsgale, the little man, sprang forward. The real fight had begun. Phelim Gimedon was struck in the face, between the rise. His whole face streamed with blood. The crowd cried, Helmsgale has tapped his claret. There was applause. Phelim Gimedon, turning his arms like the sails of a windmill, struck out at random. The Honorable Peregrine Bertie said, Blinded, but he was not blind yet. Then Helmsgale heard on all sides these encouraging words. Bung up his peepers. On the whole, the two champions were really well matched and notwithstanding the unfavorable weather, it was seen that the fight would be a success. The great giant, Phelim Gimedon, had to bear the inconveniences of his advantages. He moved heavily. His arms were massive as clubs, but his chest was a mass. His little opponent ran, struck, sprang, gnashed his teeth, redoubling vigor by quickness, from knowledge of the science. 
on the one side was the primitive blow of the fist savage uncultivated in a state of ignorance on the other side the civilized blow of the fist helmsgall fought as much with his nerves as with his muscles and with as much intention as force philem gemadon was a kind of sluggish mauler somewhat mauled himself to begin with it was art against nature it was cultivated ferocity against barbarism it was clear that the barbarian would be beaten but not very quickly hence the interest a little man against a big one and the chances are in favor of the little one the cat has the best of it with a dog goliaths are always vanquished by david's a hail of exclamations followed the combatants bravo helmsgale good well done highlander now fail him and the friends of helmsgale repeated their benevolent exhortation bung up his peepers helmsgale did better rapidly bending down and back again with the undulation of a serpent he struck philem gemadon in the sternum the colossus staggered foul blow cried viscount barnard philem gemadon sank down on the knee of his second saying i am beginning to get warm lord desertum consulted the umpires and said five minutes before time is called philem gemadon was becoming weaker kilter wiped the blood from his face and the sweat from his body with a flannel and placed the neck of a bottle to his mouth they had come to the eleventh round Phelim, besides the scar on his forehead, had his breast disfigured by blows, his belly swollen, and the forepart of the head scarified. Helmsgale was untouched. A kind of tumult arose among the gentlemen. Lord Bernard repeated, Foul blow! Betts void, said the, the laird of Lamirabaugh. I claim my stake, replied Sir Thomas Culpepper. And the honorable member for the borough of St. Ives, Sir Bartholomew Gracedieu, added, Give me back my five hundred guineas, and I will go. Stop the fight. Phelim arose, staggering like a drunken man, and said, Let us go on fighting on one condition, that I also shall have the right to give one foul blow. They cried, Agreed, from all parts of the ring. Helmsgale shrugged his shoulders. Five minutes elapsed, and they set to again. The fighting, which was agony to Phelim, was played to Helmsgale. Such are the triumphs of science. The little man found means of putting the big one into chancery. That is to say, Helmsgale suddenly took under his left arm, which was bent like a steel crescent, the huge head of Phelim Gemadon, and held it there under his armpits, the neck bent and twisted, while Helmsgale's right fist fell again and again like a hammer on a nail, only from below and striking upwards, thus smashing his opponent's face at his ease. When Phelim, released at length, lifted his head, he no longer had a face that which had been a nose eyes and a mouth now looked only like a black sponge soaked in blood he spat and on the ground lay four of his teeth then he fell kilter received him on his knee helmsgale was hardly touched he had some insignificant bruises and a scratch on his collarbone no one was cold now they laid sixteen and a quarter to one on helmsgale harry carleton cried out it is all over with philem gemadon i will lay my peerage of Bellaqua and my title of Lord Bellew against the Archbishop of Canterbury's old wig on Helmsgale. Give me your muzzle, said Kilter to Phelim Gemadon, and stuffing the bloody flannel into the bottle, he washed him all over with gin. The mouth reappeared, and he opened one eyelid. His temples seemed fractured. One round more, my friend, said Kilter, and he added, for the honor of the low town. The Welsh and the Irish understood each other. Still Phelim made no sign of having any power of understanding left. Phelim arose, supported by Kelter. It was the twenty-fifth round. From the way in which the Cyclops, for he had but one eye, 
placed himself in position, it was evident that this was the last round, for no one doubted his defeat. He placed his guard below his chin, with the awkwardness of a failing man. Helmsgale, with a skin hardly sweating, cried out, I'll back myself a thousand to one. Helmsgale, rising his arm, struck out, and what was strange, both fell. A ghastly chuckle was heard. It was Philem Gimadon's expression of delight. While receiving the terrible blow given him by Helmsgale on the skull, he had given him a foul blow on the navel. Helmsgale, lying on his back, rattled in his throat. The spectators looked at him as he lay on the ground, and said, Paid back! All clapped their hands, even those who had lost. Philem Gimadon had given foul blow for foul blow, and had only asserted his right. They carried Helmsgale off on a hand-barrow. The opinion was that he would not recover. Lord Robartes exclaimed, I win twelve hundred guineas. Philem Gimadon was evidently maimed for life. As she left, Josiana took the arm of Lord David, an act which was tolerated amongst people engaged. She said to him, It is very fine, but... But what? I thought it would have driven away my spleen. It is not. Lord David stopped, looked at Josiana, shut his mouth, and inflated his cheeks, whilst he nodded his head, which signified attention, and said to the Duchess, For spleen there is but one remedy. What is it? Gwynplaine. The Duchess asked, And who is Gwynplaine? End of chapter 12